When you think of hardcore punk, you might envision angry mobs of Mohawk delinquents. You might not think of an award-winning high school teacher who readily admits to once recognizing the merits of disco. But to hear Nancy Burrell tell it, that's the idea behind punk. Do your own thing. In her new memoir, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, Nancy explains what it was really like at the forefront of the punk movement and how she survived some of the most notorious hardcore shows ever. On this text, prose, and rock and roll, I sit down with Nancy to hear her story and discover the origins of hardcore punk on the East Coast. My name is Chris Kosach. I created this program to highlight the written account of music, from memoirs to band bios and the occasional rock doc too. We are the book club that rocks, literally. This is text, prose, and rock and roll. Track 14, Hardcore Punk. Being a woman in the punk movement of the 1970s couldn't have been easy. It required grit, guts, and lots of self-confidence, all of which Nancy Burrill possesses. She's also a really nice lady, but as the title of her book suggests, Nancy was never, ever going to be made to stand on the sidelines of the action. Okay, so I came up in the early punk scenes and hardcore scenes from like 1976 to about 83, 84. And then when social media took over, um, I joined hardcore Facebook groups and punk groups and stuff, you know, to see what people were talking about. And I would hear this thing about like, oh, yeah, you know, my girl held my coat when I went into the pit and like and it was like common. I'd hear it all the time, you know, and I was like, that is such bullshit. You know, like I it used to aggravate me so badly to hear that, like it as as a educator, as a documentarian, as a woman, as a punk on every level, it offended me. So that, you know, obviously I wasn't holding anybody's coat. And most of the women I know weren't holding anybody's coat, you know, unless it was by choice. So I was like, this is, you know, I, when, when um, I mentioned it to my publisher, it was kind of like as a joke. And, and um, then I was like, yeah, this is, you know, we short, you know, um, we shortened it up a little bit, made a little more punchy. And then there you go. <laughs> well, that's how the best titles come to be, right? When they're just kind of like off the cuff. Exactly. So they really are. You know, first of all, how many podcasts have you done? <laughs> so, you know, it seems like endless, but I think I've done, this might be my fifth, okay. you know, not as many as I feel like I did because I'm like not, you know, I never listened to podcasts back in the day because I have a very short commute and they seem like things that people do on commutes. <laughs> like but that's never, true. That is and true. And so now I'm like doing all these podcasts. <laughs> so but but you fun. know what? In a way, podcasts are your niche. But it seems to me that uh, podcasts are the pirate radio of today. They really are. And what could be more like edgy and counterculture than being doing pirate radio, right? You know, having and having freedom to to speak your mind and buck authority and anti-establishment. So it really is kind of it seems to me that a medium has finally caught up with the punk rock ethic. Do you agree? Yes, and I, I agree a hundred percent. And it's very do it yourself. You know, when I think about Dominic and Samantha, the 13 year old kids who did it, 
you know, here they are, they're in a pandemic and, you know, everybody's worried, oh, the kids aren't going to learn. The kids are, the kids are starting their own podcast, you know, they're having Ian Mackay on, you know, like they're doing, they're doing it. And so it's giving people a, a, a place, a spot, a space to talk. And, you know, Drew and I, Drew Stone and I talked about it. Um, you know, he's got a very, very successful podcast and his was the first that I did. And so like in a pandemic, it's a great, communicator, you know, which was also really important to the punk scene back in the day when we were writing letters and making expensive phone calls. So, <laughs> you know, it's been kind of fun. You talk about hundreds of dollars that you spent calling England and wow, now it's just use WhatsApp and it's free. And it's free. And that like that blows my mind because I, you know, we spent so much money and broke probably so many laws trying to like sneak around and like, you know, make phone calls from different in different ways. And so, yeah, to know that like, it's not a dollar a minute anymore, or, you know, yeah. or I was going to have to open that envelope up and be like, Oh God, I remember those days. They sucked. Our audience is probably a little bit more broad than some of the other podcasts you've been on. So could you talk and differentiate between the different subgenres of punk? Yeah. So like, you know, I don't know whether I'm a, a real authority on that or not, but, um, you know, when punk rock sort of bloomed uh, in the late 70s, um, you know, everything was mixed in, you know, new wave, punk rock. It was all, you know, somebody said to me, I got in a conversation with somebody recently and they said, were the pretenders punk rock? Well, hell yes, the pretenders were punk rock. Blondie was punk rock. Talking Heads, they asked me, were Talking Heads punk rock? Absolutely. Like, you did not go to a club and, and you know, not hear Talking Heads play. So, you know, and then as, you know, the genre developed, you know, I think it sort of, you know, um, branched out into, you know, surf punk and like, goth punk and and just like a million different things. And I sort of gravitated to what was, you know, being called hardcore. I really liked the energy of it. I liked the physicality of it. I liked the danger of it. You know, it, I don't know why, you know, um, it just spoke to me as a disenfranchised, angry person, I guess. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know why I was so angry, but like, I'm still angry, I guess. You well, know? you, you grew up in the Reagan era. Of course you're yes, angry. Yes. And that's true. You know, and I, and I came of age in the sixties and seventies. And so, you know, there was a lot going on back then. And I felt really frustrated that there wasn't much. I felt super disempowered and that I, I couldn't do anything to change things, you know? And so that I think also made me, you know, go into this, this kind of music genre, you know, yeah. but I didn't, you know, in the early days, I don't, I didn't really like differentiate and say, well, that's this, you know, and that's hardcore. And that's, you know, if the cramps played, I was there, you know, if black flag played, I was there. So um, it was just all fun. Now, you know, looking back, I see the construct that was is put on it, you know, and the different lenses that people look at, but back then it was just all good fun. But there were some absolute differences you talk about in the book from D.C. to Philly, New York. Can you tell the story of the night that they kind of all came to Kensington? That sounds like a pretty infamous show. To yeah. See flag. So Kensington is a white, uh, low-income neighborhood of Philadelphia. And a, a guy that used to run the hot club, which was the, was Philadelphia's first 
a punk rock club where everybody played and, you know, it was a really fun time. He decided to start putting on shows at this great venue called the Starlight Ballroom. It was, you know, a great place to see a show. The neighborhood just kind of sucked. So I went there a couple of times. I think I saw The Fall there. I think might have Susan the Banshees played there. No incidents at, at all. But the night that SOA and Black Flag and Autistic Behavior played there, there was a tension in the air and I felt it immediately. There were a lot of neighborhood kids that came into the show and you could tell they did not want us there, you know? So first they jumped into the pit, you know, and they were throwing elbows, you know, and punk kids are tough, you know, they gave it right back to them. Mm -hmm. And we tried to warn, there were a lot of kids from DC there because um, SOA played. It was uh, uh, Henry's last show with them. And so we tried to warn them and say, like, you know, this could be a dangerous situation. <laughs> like, you know, you have to be on your toes. But, you know, as Ian tells it from his perspective, he was on the stage and he saw, you know, some younger kids run in, you know, throw punches at the DC kids. And he knew right away it was a setup. And he screamed at his friend's don't, don't go outside, don't go outside. But of course they chased the kids outside. And then like the entire neighborhood was waiting for them with bats and lead pipes and everything. And they were brutalized, you know, it was just insane. And I kind of thought that DC and Philly would come together to fight these kids, you know, but what happened was DC didn't, didn't differentiate between us and the Kensington kids and the Kensington kids didn't differentiate between us and the DC kids. So I ended up taking a, a, a punch to the face from a, a DC skin. And, you know, it was just mayhem, like totally, totally scary mayhem. Um, you know, afterwards, you know, I find I found out that, you know, the, the DC kids, their injuries were a hospital level you know, stitches and concussions and broken bones and, you know, things like that. Yeah. We were lucky, like, you know, we, we escaped and, and the, we had gotten to the show from the elevated, you know, train. So like, you know, we had to wait for the train to come to get the hell out of there, like hiding between cars. And, and, you know, I remember I just, you know, saw the warriors, like, you know, maybe a year or two before that. I was like, yeah. I love, I love that you liken it to that movie because it really does kind of. It really was that like that. You dark. know, we just waited till we heard the rumble and then we ran up and got on. And, you know, I was so glad to get out of there. I was making deals with God, you know, I won't go to go law school, you know, I'll do whatever you want to get me out of here. Cause it was so incredibly like people could have died you know we're lucky that they didn't but they could have and so you know and then we're stupid enough to go back a year later because the dead kennedys were playing you know and i bring my little brother who's you know barely out of high school if he even was out of high school and um it was a really hot day in july and everybody was you know kind of hanging outside around you know outside the club and i saw a car pull up really slow with four guys in it. And, you know, my brother was in the middle of the sentence and I was like, this is going to be a drive-by shooting. That's what I thought it was going to be. And I just grabbed my brother and said, run. And we ran down the street and they threw a homemade bomb at us with a stick of dynamite and ball bearings and BBs. And one girl had her foot pretty severely injured and um, people had ball bearings and BBs embedded in their arms and legs. And, you know, so then, 
we got back and we, you know, went into the safety of the club, but, um, and the show went on, but it was just, it, you know, it was scary. And I just, I was worried about my little brother. And I had a friend there at the time named Victor, who was the toughest guy that I ever knew. And he just said, stick with me because if anybody looks at me for more than two seconds, I'm banging them out. And I was like, I'm sticking with you. You know, <laughs> um, the bands played and uh, I think it was Informed Sources played. And, you know, Frank from Informed Sources said, you know, he was about, you know, trying to, stopped the skirmishes in the audience and felt about as effective as, you know, Keith Richards at Al at Altamont, you know, trying to calm people down in that crowd. Um, it was pretty crazy. And then somebody brought out a fire extinguisher and started spraying it to the point where you couldn't see anybody. And at that point, I was like, I'm out of here. And somebody was leaving. I didn't even know them. I was like, please, let me just like hang on the roof of your car and, you know, get out of here. And they were like, okay, okay. So they took my brother and me and, and uh, I made a vow. I would never return to Kensington and I never did, you know, <laughs> and looking back on it, of course, I can see now, you know, the Kensington kids, you know, they didn't have much, you know, they had their neighborhood, their friends, their, you know, the respect that they had amongst each other and they didn't want anybody to colonize their area, you know? And so they were, you know, they, they were doing what they thought was, you know, running us off, which they did, they did run us off. But, um, you know, that kind of behavior is never, <laughs> never be condoning it. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was a very, very scary time. And, you know, back then, you know, I mean, I remember being terrified, definitely terrified. But there were so many shows that I went to back then where either there were riots or the cops came or something, you know, something was happening that you sort of just got kind of shell shocked and sort of used to it after a while. And when I was writing the book, I was like, no one's going to believe this shit happened, you know, <laughs> because it's just too crazy, you know? So, but it, but it all did. And, uh, you know, it made me a stronger person because of it. At that show headlining, of course, were the dead Kennedys. Jello Biafra ran for president some years ago. There's always been a connection between punk and politics. I don't know why I've been weaving politics into the last two or three episodes, but I guess I'm just obsessed with headlines right now. My question for you on that front, which kind of deviates from your book, just the tiniest bit, is that politics and punk always kind of together. You guys believed that you could make some change. You were anti-establishment, right? Down with the man. Mm -hmm. And kind of uh, the, the machine kept rolling. Do you find that that is still the same belief system for your peers today? Where are your peers right now on the thoughts of politics and change and progression? Because you were all probably the original progressives for the modern world. I mean, I like I, I see so many of my peers who have gone into careers as, you know, social activists, educators, ethical business owners, um, you know, who are still fighting the good fight. You know, right. uh, almost every punk teacher that I know is trying to equip students with the skills necessary to be able to, you know, look at, you know, conflicting data and and. Uh, emotional politics and and create independent thinkers and learners, you know, like people, you know, I, I've heard people say like, oh, you know, you, you liberal teachers, you know, you're trying to corrupt their minds. We don't teach them what to think. We teach them how to think. And so there's a whole network of punk rock teachers out there that, you know, are doing this work. There are um, almost everyone that I came up with 
um, kind of holds the same views where, you know, we've, we've, we're still protesting racism and, and sexism and, you know, xenophobia. And my husband is still, you know, he's, he was in a punk rock band and he's still very, very vocal about that. But surprisingly enough, there is a very, very small contingent who sort of went the other way um, into conservatism. And I, I find that really, really difficult to understand. And I'm at an age right now, like, okay, so the book came out and I, you know, I, I get a lot of friend requests and stuff on Facebook. And, you know, I vet people out by, well, who do you know that I know, you know? <laughs> and then just yesterday, you know, I had somebody on there, you know, who was like, Joe Biden's going to destroy the country, you know? Now, back in the day, I would have taken that on probably. Right now, my work can be better done in, in, in registering my kids to vote and teaching them, you know, equipping them with the tools necessary to, to go on and, and fight, you know? Um, so I just, you know, I just unfriended him, you know? But it's, um, it is, it's really surprising, you know, when I see people that I came up with you know, touting a Trumpian conservative agenda that to me is so crystal clear wrong, you know, in every single way and dangerous and fake and scary. And, and, um, and so right now, you know, my concentration isn't so much with my fellow punks, it's with young people. And, um, you know, some people will be like, you know, why do you post so much politics on your Facebook, because a lot of my former students are listening, you know, and they're looking to me for guidance. The night that Donald Trump was elected, I probably had 25 emails from former students saying, like, what do we do? You know, what do we do, Miss Burrell, you know, and I'm like, I'm not really sure right now, you know, we fight, you know, uh, um, and so that's my focus more than um, on my contemporaries. But that being said, I'm always really, you know, really happy to see that, you know, people like Glenn Friedman, they're still fighting my husband, you know, uh, I, I followed, you know, choke Jack Kelly, you know, he's very vocal um, about politics on his Instagram. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see it, you know, because I think that there's a lot of people that look up to them as icons and want to know what they're thinking, you know, and they can maybe explain it better than the media can, or even the voices of the politicians themselves. So I think, you know, one thing we always, you know, a, a lot of things, a lot of people have always said when we were, you know, coming up, doesn't matter. They all hate you. All politicians don't, no one cares about you. They're all out for themselves. And if anything, I think this country had a huge wake up call. It does matter to the individual who is president of the United States. It matters a lot. And we saw that, you know, we saw that. And um, I was really happy to see the number of voters that came out um, yeah. because it says that we're, we're out of that complacency where people just go, ah, government, let, the, let it run itself, you know? I mean, yeah. I want to get to a point where I don't need to know the postmaster general's name, you know? <laughs> you know, there's, there's things that I don't need to know about politics, you know? But um, I do think that it was a, a huge awakening for this country, and that's going to be a good thing. And people, are going, and people are running for office, you know, and that, that always, you know, I have, I have former student right now running for, two former students right now running for office in my, um, in my district and uh, for state rep. And that, boy, that makes me like, 
That's exciting. Really excited. Really excited. Yeah. So speaking of your, your students, you know, Greg Graffin from Bad Religion was on this show a few months ago. Yeah, and, um, yeah. and he's such a sweet man. He was telling me, I don't even know if it made it into the podcast or not, but he was telling us that, you know, this buck authority kind of mindset as a young man, when it came time to him being a parent and his kid doing exactly what he did, he said, it really kind of sucked. So my question is, you don't have kids, right? But you, you have thousands of kids. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you do when kids like give you a taste of your own medicine when you were a teenager? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I'm really, really lucky that um, I'm, I'm even at my age and the fact that I don't look anything like my students, um, that I, I'm able to very quickly build relationships with my students. And so I don't have a lot of classroom management issues at all. You know, if a kid feels wronged by authority, you know, I'll listen, you know, I'll be like, well, what happened? Tell me what happened, you know, and and then, you know, try to help them sort it out so that they can, uh, you know, so that they can move forward, you know, but I also teach in a school that is um, really conscious of making school a welcoming place for kids and a place where they can feel empowered and ownership and so, you know, and, and so that's, you know, that makes it a little easier too, you know, but, um, and I've had rep, you know, kids that were rebellious for no reason. And then I tell them like, you need to channel that rebellion into something that's going to make a difference, you know? Yeah. So, um, I, I, I just, you know, I don't have a lot of issues like that. So I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Um, I'm trying to think of like, you know, usually whenever I have a kid that's like giving me a hard time or not doing the work or whatever, there's always a story, a layered story underneath the reason why that student is like that. You know, I, 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 uh, my next book may even be about, you know, one of my students that, you know, kind of did nothing in my class and was really, uh, you know, failing everything. And, you know, I found out he's a survivor of genocide in Bosnia, you know, so, um, and had only, you know, come to this country like four years before and was solely in school just to play soccer and, you know, didn't really feel the connection to school, you know? And so I, I you know, I did a lot of work with him and, and now he works, he works for the federal government, you know, uh, hoping that no one else will ever have to experience what he experienced as a young child. He got a degree in international relations and, you know, he's doing big things. So that's, you know, it, if you build relationships with kids, you're not going to have a whole lot of classroom management issues, you know? My guest today is Nancy Burrell, and her book is I'm Not Holding Your Coat. Let's take a quick break right there. Nancy and I will be right back. How to Build a Village is a podcast about building a community when you move to a new place. We'll take you from D.C. to Dublin, Seattle to Sydney, as we hear from novelists, journalists, comedians, and other people who are trying to find their place during unsettling times. I'm your host, Jill Martin-Wren. I'm a British-American journalist from New York, living in London, and I look forward to hearing from you. You can find How to Build a Village on your favorite podcast platform. All right, let's get back into the action with Nancy Burrill and her book, I'm Not Holding Your Coat. 
right. I want to get back to like the club scene here for just a second and some of the amazing things that you experienced. It's Black History Month. You tell this great story in the book about the ghetto writers. Would you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, at the time, towards the end of 1982, there started to be a little bit of schism between cities, you know, Boston and New York and D.C., Philly and stuff. So um, we decided we had been followed. I was friends with Sean Stern via phone. I never at that point I hadn't met him in person. And he was doing the Better Youth Organization out in L.A. doing shows and, you know, doing all kinds of really cool stuff. And so we uh, Allison Schnackenberg, Ron Thatcher and a couple of other of my uh, of our friends, we wanted to emulate his BYO model and make a Philly BYO and start doing things in Philly. And so we decided our first show would be uh, uh, coming together of the tribes, you know, so we were going to have two bit. We had two bands from Philadelphia, Crib Death and Flag of Democracy. We had Agnostic Front from New York. We had um, SSD Control from Boston and we had Minor Threat from D.C. Now, I can tell you, I, you know, looking back now, like, I don't know if we even realized the powerhouse lineup that we had built, you know, <laughs> no, we're just going to do a show, you know, and um, I, I called Al, you know, we were dating at the time and I was like, you know, I have this good show for you, you know, you to do. And he's like, don't bring me to a war zone, Nancy, <laughs> you know, because I, he knew my stories about Kensington. I was like, nah, it'll be fine, you know. And so we booked the show in Camden, New Jersey, which probably at the time and probably today is in like the top three most violent cities in the country. Yeah, even so, I know that. I'm from yeah. California and I'm yeah. in Camden, and you New know Jersey. That, right? so, okay, no, but like, don't get off the freeway. You know, we, we, we didn't have that. Per- we had lost perspective, you know, <laughs> so, and so we found this, you know, cool venue that was like a fire hall called Buff Hall. So um, Allison went first and I came with Al stopped and picked me up in Philly and Philly to Jersey is only, you know, you go over the bridge and you're in Jersey. And I could tell when we started driving there, the, the area was blighted and kind of scary looking and I, was starting to get a little nervous and I could tell Al was too. And that that's when we pulled up in front of the venue. I jumped out to find out where you unloaded the equipment. And as I got out, Ian went, Ian McKay from Minor Threat went over to talk to Al at the driver's side window. And I looked down the street and I saw a station wagon like veering down the street, going at a really high rate of speed. And I was like, this guy isn't stopping. And sure enough, he crashed into Al's van head on and Ian, you know, he was a skateboarder, so he had good reflexes. He jumped and, like, grabbed the top of the van. And luckily, he did that, you know, blew his shoes right off. And then the guy just went down the street. And, and you know, he's laying in the middle of the road. I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, like, it was insane. So we had gotten the license number. And um, someone quickly took Ian to the hospital because he definitely needed medical care, you know. And I go in to find Allison. And I'm like, I see her sitting at the bar with like, you know, I don't know, eight, nine of the scariest, you know, black biker dudes I had ever seen. You know, I think in the book I say they look like, you know, something you'd see like in a, you know, comic strip or something. You know, they were that's, you know, how like with their jackets on and stuff. And I'm like, Allison, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, and she comes over. I was like, what's going on? And she was like, you know, these are the ghetto riders. They're a division of the wheels of soul. And uh 
Kids were getting jumped and robbed and attacked on the way from public transportation to the venue. They demanded entry into the club and she had no choice but to let them in. And, you know, she, Allison was really smart and charming and beautiful and, and uh, still is. And uh, she, you know, explained to them what we were doing and they said, we'll take care of it, you know? So they put the word out on the street that it was a ghetto riders party that night at Buff Hall. And like that, the attack stopped. And so, you know, they said, we can protect you as long as you don't go outside, you know? And at one point I was so hot, you know, I went outside and somebody threw a battery, it hit me right in the ribs. I thought I got shot. And um, I was like, all right, I gotta listen to people when they tell me not to go outside. That was hot. And so that show, you know, and there's video of that show, thank God, you know, because who would believe it, um, was one of the best shows, you know, that probably might even be the best show that I ever attended. You know, it was really great. Everybody, you know, I don't know if it was the danger, the fear, the, the, the near death experiences or what, but it just, it just upped the level of energy in the room and, uh, everybody brought their A-game and played their guts out, and it was so fun after that. You talk about the straight edge being a straight edge punk. I had never heard of that. I'd like you to describe that. And you also talk about Straight Edge, uh, the chant. Can you okay. give that to us as well? Okay. So um, Ian McKay, Minor Threat, wrote a song called The Straight Edge, you know, and it was about, you know, not drinking and not smoking for the reasons, you know, of not being in control and you didn't need it and, you know, things like that. And my husband's band listened to that, or my husband listened to that, and he had met uh, Henry in New York City, Henry Rollins, in New York City and talked to them. And the way my husband came up in high school, he didn't feel like he had a choice in whether to drink or not drink, you know? So my husband really latched on to Straight Edge. And uh, every song he wrote was about Straight Edge. (laughs) And, you know, he, he became one of its biggest proponents. And so when I met, okay, so first of all, I wasn't nuts about DC people after what happened in Kensington. And, you know, in Philly, we like to party and have a good time, you know? So like when I heard about Straight Edge, I was like, well, that's not for me, you know? And then I met Al and, you know, he, it was with him, it was always about the choice, you know, having the choice to do it. So when I met him, people were like, well, you're going to be Straight Edge now? Is he going to make you be Straight Edge? And, you know, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't a requirement. I mean, uh, if I wanted to be, I could be. And at, and at first I wasn't, you know, when I moved to Boston, I adapted that, you know, that way of life and, and, and it became really empowering to me, you know, um, uh, we started working out and I started lifting weights at a time when not many women lifted weights. And uh, this is about 82 this around this 80, was, yeah, 1982. Yeah. Okay. And so like when, when we went to the gym and worked out together, we were, we were the only couple working out together there, you know, in fact, years and years later, I, I had a parent teacher conference 
this guy walked in. He was like, you're that, <laughs> you're that woman who used to work out at the gym with her husband or boyfriend at the time, you know? And he was like, I was always jealous of that, you know? So it helped me, you know, it helped me clear my head and, and focus a little bit more. The straight edge chant was um, minor threat, SSD control, and MDC played at Irving Plaza in New York City. And you know, none of us knew, and I don't think the I don't think anybody in SSD control knew, but Choke, you know, he's sort of a prankster kind of guy. He had created this, you know, state straight edge chant, you know, where it's like, you know, kill anybody with a beer in the hand, and then it had like a fallout and everybody jumped into the audience. And it was funny. I thought it was funny. I don't know that all the kids in New York thought it was funny, but you know, most of them did. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. As the years went on. I got out of hardcore probably by 1985 and I know straight edge became much more militant and much more dangerous and, and much more rule driven where, you know, you couldn't have sex and you couldn't, you had to be vegan and stuff. Like I can assure you that part of it was not happening when I was in it, you know, but um, you know, so then I would hear stories, you know, where people would believe the mythology to a certain extent, you know, that kill anybody with a, you know, oh, I heard these guys did this and I heard these guys you know, crack me up because, you know, I was at all those shows and I never saw anybody getting a beer knocked out of their hands or anything like that. You know, th there were people in SSD control who weren't straight edge, you know, um, and a lot of their friends weren't straight edge. A lot of my friends weren't straight edge. No one was like, you need to be straight edge. You know, it was about the choice. And so it's funny to me today to, you know, hear all this talk, you know, about things that happen and people will, you know, I, I help run the SSD control Instagram page for my husband. And, you know, I, the way I wanted to make it authentic was to put the, the voices of the band members or people who were at the shows or whatever. And so I would put things in there and people would be like, well, that didn't happen like that. They did this or that. And I'm like, no, they did <laughs> relax. You know, it didn't happen. So, you know, it like, like all things like that. But that being said in the late eighties and early nineties, it did get dark. And I know that there was some crazy stuff going on in places like Utah and stuff where, you know, you could lose your life, you know, so, but that wasn't my experience at all. And I can only really tell my experience. Wow. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> I didn't know about any of that. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the fact that they're like, like vegans and stuff, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. The whole vegan thing, like kind of took off, you know, and like, <laughs> it's my fondest desire to be vegan. And I, you know, I, I, go in and out of it like all the time. I really try to eat a plant-based diet and stuff, you know, but I never heard of it associated with straight edge until, yeah. you know, like the late eighties, you know? Wow. That is, that's nuts. So you, you put on a show at the Elks in Philly and then you had to do with the BYO. Did you continue to um, have dreams or did you exercise your your skills of doing promotion i know you ran into a, a little bit of problem with the politics of it all but what happened to all the festivals that you were pioneering so i, I moved to boston like that was the number one thing that happened to, for me now in philly and it's an interesting story i think too in philly they continued the byo and they they built a, their own venue with a skate ramp. And, you know, I'm not really sure of all the things that they did, but they continued that do-it-yourself model. When I moved to Boston, um, 
I still did shows and helped Al promote shows. And in fact, one of my fondest, probably bragging things that I say, and I have it framed over there in the wall, is that I negotiated a deal for Minor Threat when they played Boston at, a, at the channel, which was a, a club in Boston um, that, some, that did all, all ages shows in the afternoon that I got them the most money that they ever got. I think, I think it's 1250 with a bonus of 250 if they, if they got 750 people paid, which of course I knew they were gonna do. And, and like, they didn't care about the money, but I was relentless in getting them what I thought they deserved. And even like, you know, doing it as a challenge. And so like, I just wore the, the owner manager down, the, his manager, I wore him down until he like, and then I ran down there with my little typed up contract and made him yeah. sign it. And so, you know, like I'm really, you know, I found that contract maybe like three or four years ago. I'm like, I'm framing this, you know, because it was it was, you know, a big sense of empowerment. But in Boston, um, there were places you could play. So, you know, even though we did do VFW Hall shows and stuff like that, um, the channel did a lot of all ages shows and stuff. Um, So it wasn't the need wasn't there as much as it was. And then, you know, by like 84, like I'm starting to get out of it. So I often wonder, you know, you know, we all look back in hindsight and, and think, you know, like, what if I pursued that as a career, you know, that being said, I didn't super enjoy it either, because I was always stressed out about what was going to happen. Was somebody going to get hurt? Were the cops going to shut it down? Was I going to get arrested? Was the band going to show up? Was somebody going to get in a fight, you know? So it was always really, you know, tense. And I probably did it more out of necessity than I did out of enjoyment. So. (laughs) What I noticed about your book, it's love letter. It's a love letter to Philly. It's a love letter to punk. It's a love letter to your husband. Was that kind of the idea behind putting this Absolutely. In fact, I said those exact words. I said, especially that this is a love letter to Philadelphia, because I just I love Philadelphia and I'll always love Philadelphia. And the time it seems like when I look back and I think, you know, I must have been in Philadelphia forever, but I was in Philadelphia for two years. Now, I lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I used to go to Philadelphia, but I actually lived in Center City for two years. That's it. But they were very formative years, you know, they changed my way of thinking, they changed, you know, how the way I did things. And I just love that city so much that I'm just like, begging out to when I retire to move back there, you know, I really want to go back. There's so much greatness in Philly that you saw politically, right? When, you know, I I love the Philadelphian attitude of, you know, um, can I swear in this? Is this? Yeah. 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 You know, the whole fuck around and find out thing, you know, like if you fuck around with Philly, you will find out, you know, like um, it's a super, super friendly place, but not if you mess with people. (laughs) There's there's something magical about Philly. Absolutely. You know, and it's, you know, you know, it never it's like, you know, so close to New York and everything. But to me, it has everything that I want, you know, and I'm really I really miss it. And I miss, you know, I keep in touch with a lot of people who were my friends, you know, back in that time. And I miss them. I want to go back, you know, and it's too cold here in Boston, way too cold. 
Um, all right. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I hope you will come back when you have another book. Uh, Thank you, Chris. The, I totally appreciate that. Absolutely. I'm Not Holding Your Coat is on Bazillion Points. Thank you. Thank you. Text Pros and Rock and Roll was created, written, and produced by yours truly in association with GoTo Productions' Charlene Goto Producer. Once again, I'd like to thank Nancy Burrell and Bazillion Books for their time and energy today. And a big thanks to Nancy's husband, Al Burrell, for the use of SSD's music in this episode. Additional music from Jeremy Corpus and Huma Huma. Please continue to get the word out about our show. If you haven't yet done so, follow us on Instagram and tell a friend. Reach out while you're there, please. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at textprosrockandroll.com. And yes, we do take requests. For Text Pros and Rock and Roll, I'm Chris Kosach. Rock on. 